This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. It is October 2017. 500 years ago this month, Martin Luther wrote 95 theses against the abuse of indulgences in the Western Church. We have traced the Reformation to this date for a long time, but as you and I have discussed before, in earlier episodes of Office Hours, the Reformation began before 1517, and it certainly did not end there. Decades later, Luther would say that in 1517, he was still a, quoting now, right roaring papist. He would not come to understand salvation through faith alone, by grace alone, until 1519. And he would not articulate the Protestant doctrine of sola scriptura until a month before the Diet of Worms in 1521. Still, it is important that we remember and celebrate the Reformation, not out of tribal loyalties, because these are our people, but because the Reformation brought us back to the sufficiency of God's Word for worship and the Christian life, back to the gospel, back to the sufficiency of Christ's person and work for our justification and for our entire salvation. One of the reasons it is important to remember and to celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Reformation is that in many quarters, even by those who think of themselves as Protestants, the history of the Reformation, the lessons of the Reformation, and the basic principles of the Reformation have been forgotten, neglected, or sometimes opposed, sometimes even in the name of the Reformation. At the end of August of this year, the Pew Research Center published the results of a study which they headlined, U.S. Protestants are not defined by the Reformation-era controversies 500 years later. According to the study, only about one-half surveyed said that faith alone is enough to get into heaven. Let me say that again. About 50% of Protestants, those who in some way identify with Martin Luther, say that faith alone is not sufficient to get into heaven. Of course, we can't blame them for being confused. Repeatedly, major evangelical leaders have said something very much like this. Even as they celebrate the Reformation, sometimes they undermine it by suggesting that there are multiple stages to justification, or that Jesus made it possible for sinners to be saved, but that he has not actually saved them, that they must contribute to their own salvation. The report says, and quoting now, 500 years after the start of the Protestant Reformation, a new Pew Research Center survey finds that U.S. Protestants are not united and in some cases are not even aware of some of the controversies that were central to the historical schism between Protestantism and Catholicism. Indeed, half a millennium after fundamental disagreements over the means of salvation and the authority of the Bible, among other topics, sparked a series of bloody wars between Protestants and Catholics in Europe, most American Protestants now say the two Christian traditions are more similar than different religiously, and many U.S. Protestants espouse traditionally Catholic beliefs on some issues— For example, nearly half of U.S. Protestants today, 46%, say that faith alone is needed to attain salvation, a belief held by Protestant reformers in the 16th century, known in Latin as sola fide. But about half 
52% say that good deeds and faith are needed to get into heaven. Historically, a Catholic belief. U.S. Protestants are also split on another issue that played a key role in the Reformation. 46% say that the Bible is the sole source of religious authority for Christians, a traditionally Protestant belief known as sola scriptura. Meanwhile, 52% say Christians should look both to the Bible and to the Church's official teachings and tradition for guidance, the position held by the Catholic Church during the time of the Reformation and today. When these two questions are combined, the survey shows that just 3 in 10 U.S. Protestants believe in both sola fide and sola scriptura. One-third of Protestants, 35%, affirm one but not the other. 36% do not believe either in sola fide or sola scriptura. While Protestants are divided on how salvation is attained and whether the Bible is the sole source to which Christians should look for religious guidance, U.S. Catholics mostly align with the teachings of the Catholic Church. Fully 8 in 10 U.S. Catholics say that both good deeds and faith are needed to get into heaven, and three-quarters say that in addition to the Bible, Christians need guidance from church teachings and tradition. Overall, two-thirds of Catholics take the traditional positions of the Church on both of these issues. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. So far, I've been reading from the report issued by the Pew Forum. The report continues, And when asked which religious group traditionally teaches that salvation comes through faith alone, only Protestants, only Catholics, both or neither, just one quarter of U.S. Protestants correctly answered only Protestants. That was 27%. A plurality of Protestants, 44%, say that both Protestantism and Catholicism teach sola fide, while 19% say neither tradition teaches this, and 8% say only Catholicism holds that salvation comes through faith alone. The new survey also shows that majorities of both Protestants and Catholics in America say that the two traditions are religiously, quoting now, more similar than they are different, close quote. About two-thirds of Catholics, 65%, take this position, as do 57% of Protestants, including 67% of white mainline Protestants. One issue that split Protestants and Catholics during the Reformation was disagreement over whether Christians attained salvation in heaven through faith in God alone or through a combination of faith and good works. Generally speaking, Martin Luther and the other Protestant reformers in the 16th century espoused the belief that salvation is attained only through faith in Jesus and his atoning sacrifice on the cross, sola fide, while Catholicism taught that salvation comes through a combination of faith plus good works, for example, living a virtuous life and seeking forgiveness for sins. Again, I've been reading from the Pew Forum report on this survey. The study goes on to say that about 30% of American Protestants believe in both salvation by grace alone through faith alone and the sufficiency of Scripture for the Christian faith and the Christian life. Now, we might quibble with the way some of these questions are formed. I think the question is properly formed about heaven. I'm not sure that I like the way the question is formed relative to the authority of Scripture, since confessional Protestants do say that the Church has some authority and confessions have some authority, but that authority is derived from Scripture and subordinate 
to Scripture. And so perhaps we could quibble a little bit with the way that particular question was formed. But nevertheless, we do get a pretty clear indication from the survey that the state of the Reformation among American Protestants is not good, and it gets worse. Remarkably, the study discovered that 30% of American Protestants believe in purgatory, which is, of course, the doctrinal playground on which Rome invented the doctrine of indulgences, which was why Martin Luther composed his 95 theses and sent them to the Archbishop of Mainz. Remember, indulgences are the powers given to the church that can be earned either through doing something like, for example, walking through an arch or maybe bought by paying money to the Roman church instead of performing acts of penance assigned by a priest in this life. Right? Purgatory is where you make up, according to Rome, for the penances that you have not completed in this life, where you finish your purification so that you can be intrinsically holy and righteous and therefore enter into heaven. By contrast, the Protestant reformers, the Protestant churches, the Lutheran churches and the Lutheran confessions and the Reformed churches and the Reformed confessions agreed that, according to Scripture, Jesus is the Savior and that his righteousness accomplished for us is credited to us. And it's on that basis that we are able to stand before God, even though we are in ourselves intrinsically still sinful. We say that we lay hold of, we apprehend Christ and his righteousness for us through faith alone. And we define that faith as resting, receiving, trusting. And so you have two very different systems. The Roman system of salvation through sanctification, which is, in their view, grace and cooperation with grace, and our view, which is salvation by God's free favor alone through faith alone, which then produces in the believer good works as a consequence of being saved. But we are not being good and we're not being sanctified in order to be saved. So, all of this raises a very big question. How did we come to a place where the very basics of the Reformation are either unknown or rejected even by those who see themselves as Protestants? And this is the question that we'll be exploring in a short series of episodes on Office Hours. The Reformation did not go unchallenged at the very beginning. Rome pushed back right away. We call this movement the Counter-Reformation. So this is the first thing that we'll be considering, the first reason why, in some ways, we have, as American Protestants and perhaps in other parts of the world as well, lost our way and lost our grip on the very basics of the Reformation. By the early 16th century, most reasonable people in the West could see that the church was a mess. But most were not thinking of changing the doctrine of the church. They thought that the laity, that is the people, the priests, the bishops, and the popes, should just behave themselves better. So one of the first, earliest, and most important aspects of the Counter-Reformation was what we might call a moral reformation. They wanted to do some ecclesiastical house-cleaning. They wanted bishops to be where they were supposed to be, and they tried to end the selling of Episcopal dioceses. And they tried to get priests and laity to behave themselves better, to attend Mass, and to be better Catholics. But the initial response to the corruption of the Western Church in the late medieval period was not to change the basic doctrine of the Church. 
At the same time, there was renewed interest in the theology of an important 13th century theologian who had somewhat been eclipsed by later developments, and that was, of course, Thomas Aquinas, who died in 1274. He would become the theologian of the Counter-Reformation, and they were called the New Thomists. They read Thomas, however, selectively. For example, ignoring his Augustinian view of grace, his doctrine of election, his doctrine of reprobation. And they also embraced his doctrine that we are justified because and to the extent that we are sanctified and we're sanctified by grace and cooperation with grace. For Thomas, salvation is the process, and he says it this way, of deification, becoming infused with God. And then our cooperation with that is essential. So again, the system is presenting oneself to God on the basis of what is true of us inherently, personally, really, and intrinsically, and not on the basis of what Christ has done for us. The most powerful and effective opposition to the Reformation in the Counter-Reformation came from a new movement in the 16th century known as the Society of Jesus, or the Jesuits. We know the modern Jesuit movement, which is not identical to the original Jesuits, from a number of famous American universities, which, as I say, are related but not identical to the original Jesuits. They were founded by Ignatius of Loyola in 1534 and recognized by Pope Paul III in 1540. Its goals, the goals of the Jesuit movement, were to foster moral reform and spiritual reform in the church, but to defend the received Western medieval theology and to serve as a reaction to Protestantism and to do missions in the New World. And they were very effective at all of those things. The Jesuits had and have a particular loyalty to the papacy and, like other monastic orders, serve at the pleasure of the Pope. And they are known, as I already suggested, for their outstanding educational program. Ignatius, who died in 1556, was a Spaniard, a soldier, who was wounded in battle. And during his recovery, he was reading about the life of Christ. And he was reading other biographies. And as a consequence of that, he vowed to become a soldier for Christ made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem in 1523, and his initial goal as a soldier was to recover the holy city from the infidel Turk. But he ended up going to Paris, where he earned a master's degree in 1535, and there he committed himself unreservedly to the spiritual service of the Pope. The Jesuits were committed to a series of spiritual exercises, which some American evangelicals would probably recognize. Under a spiritual director, one would meditate each week on some aspect of Christian knowledge and truth. For example, human sin. One must begin to purge oneself of sin by meditating on it and seeing how it offends God. Secondly, we are to meditate on the knowledge and love of Christ, on his law, with a focus on the virtue of humility. And the goal here is to exemplify Jesus' suffering. Third, a Jesuit is to meditate on the risen Christ, on his glory, and to prepare followers by the process of active meditation to be disciplined in the service of the Lord and to form what they described as an elite spiritual regimen. Think of the Jesuits as sort of the Pope's special operations forces.
For us as Christians, especially those who actually believe the Reformers got it right, it was nothing short of the recovery of the gospel out of the darkness of the Middle Ages. Mike Horton for Westminster Seminary, California. There's nothing more important than getting the gospel right and getting the gospel out. Judged by those terms, the Reformation was the greatest recovery of Christianity and missionary expansion in the history of the church since the Apostle Paul. The Reformation is important to Westminster Seminary, California, because we purport to be trying to make experts in the Bible. Scripture is our focus here. At the center of the biblical message from Genesis to Revelation is God's redemption of sinners in Christ, the gospel. The Reformation not only clarified that message, but also was a flowering of biblical scholarship. Westminster takes the Reformation seriously only because it takes the scriptures seriously. And the Reformation was one of the greatest recoveries of scripture in the history of the church. We are reformed not because we want to belong to a tribe, but because we believe that this is actually the riches of scripture for the whole church. And it's not something that we possess, but something that possesses us. WSCAL.edu 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. Ignatius wanted the Jesuit to fill his mind and to use it, and thereby to achieve a goal of indifference to the world, a kind of active world flight. And salvation was said to come through piety and through service to God. And he recognized that Protestantism was a vital threat to his goals. He was not a professional theologian. He's a layman, but he was an organizer and he was a motivator of men. And he realized that the Jesuits needed to get their message out of devotion to Christ and the necessity of cooperating with divine grace. We needed to get that out not only to members of the order, but also to the laity. And he saw schools as a vitally important, useful tool in the process of making disciples and of making Jesuits. And they gained a quick following. By the time of Ignatius' death in 1556, there were about a thousand Jesuits. And they were well-known and widely respected and suspected by Protestants for their zeal in the service of the cause. A third and decisive factor in the Roman reaction, the Counter-Reformation, to the Protestant Reformation was the Council of Trent. From 1536, Pope Paul III had begun cautiously negotiating with a view to holding a general council to address the crisis precipitated by the Reformation. It was originally called for Mantua in Italy and was not actually convened until November of 1542, but they didn't really begin their work until December of 1545. It was attended by 31 bishops and 50 theologians and canon lawyers, many of whom were either Jesuits, about whom we spoke a moment ago, or Dominican. And these would be members who were identifying with the theology, piety, and practice of Thomas Aquinas. The vast majority of those who attended were Italian. The bishops and the theologians who attended had read Luther, they had read Calvin and the other leading Protestants. They had read the Lutheran and Reformed Confessions. They knew, understood, and rejected what the Reformation was saying about Scripture, salvation, the church, 
and sacraments. That's very important because it's relatively widely held today for a variety of reasons, mainly because there have been scholars claiming something like this. It's relatively widely held that Trent didn't really understand the Protestants and the entire Council of Trent for most of 20 years was a great misunderstanding. And I really don't think that that's correct. I think if we read the documents the canons and decrees of the Council of Trent, we'll see, in fact, that they understood the Reformation, they had considered the Reformation, and they deliberately rejected the Reformation. And what is of equal importance, I think, is that the Council of Trent, contrary to what you may have heard or read, the Council of Trent is still authoritative in the Roman Communion, and that's easily proved. Find yourself a copy of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. They're easily found, again, and if you can't find a print copy, you can go to the Vatican website. It's very easy. They have their own domain. It's vatican.va, and there are English-language resources, and you can just search for catechism. And if you look at the catechism of the Roman Catholic Church, there are footnotes. And as you go through and look at the footnotes, you can see the documents that Rome officially regards as authoritative and binding. And on the key issues that separate Roman Catholics from confessional Protestants, you will see them quoting and citing the Council of Trent. It's still authoritative. It's still binding. And things have not changed nearly as much as we are sometimes led to believe by well-meaning evangelicals and others. In other words, the Reformation is still relevant and still necessary. We're not fighting a battle that has been either lost or won or is not in question anymore. It's very much in question. And we can see where Rome came out on a number of questions. We'll start with the Doctrine of Scripture, Session 4, 1546. Now, understand that these sessions sort of came and went. The delegates would meet for a while, and then they would adjourn for a while, and then they would reconvene. And so this is a long-running, depending on how you figure it, either 20-year or 17-year you know, synod that went on. So, Session 4, 1546, and this is Rome's doctrine of Scripture. The gospel, before promised through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, first promulgated with his own mouth and then commanded to be preached by his apostles to every creature as the fountain of all both saving truth and moral discipline, and seeing clearly that this truth and discipline are contained in the written books— so far, so good. Now, watch this. And the unwritten traditions, Rome claims to be the repository of an unwritten apostolic tradition, and here it comes, and the unwritten traditions which, received by the apostles from the mouth of Christ himself or from the apostles themselves, the Holy Spirit dictating, have come down to us transmitted, as it were, from hand to hand. The council following the examples of the Orthodox Fathers, receives and venerates, now watch this, with equal affection of piety and reverence. All the books, both of the Old and New Testaments, seeing that one God is the author of both. So the Roman Communion says that there are two sources of equally authoritative teaching, Holy Scripture and the unwritten tradition of the apostles, which is essentially whatever Rome says it is. And R.C. Sproul has a good comment on this. He says, So, Trent affirmed that the truth of God is contained both in the written documents that make up the canon and in the unwritten traditions. 
This raises the issue of the dual-source theory of revelation. Are there two sources of revelation, Scripture and tradition, or is there only one source, Scripture? R.C. goes on to note that an early draft of this section of the canons and decrees of the Council of Trent used the construction partly-partly, but that was rejected, and they went with A and B, that is, Scripture and unwritten apostolic tradition. And the Catechism is very explicit about that. Again, in session four, Rome declared, Furthermore, in order to restrain petulant spirits, the council decrees that no one relying on his own skill shall, in matters of faith and of morals pertaining to the edification of Christian doctrine, resting the sacred scripture to his own senses, presume to interpret the said sacred scripture contrary to the sense which Holy Mother Church whose it is to judge the true sense and interpretation of the Holy Scriptures, hath held and doth hold. In other words, no one can challenge on the basis of the teaching of Scripture the teaching of the Church. According to the Council of Trent, the teaching of Rome is irreformable, and the Bible works for the Church. The Church does not work for the Bible. And, of course, the Protestants took the exact opposite position. We said that scriptures are sufficiently clear, and sometimes the history of the church is sufficiently unclear that we must say that the scriptures norm the teaching and authority of the church. And the only authority the church has is inasmuch as she is being faithful to scripture. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. What about the doctrine of justification, that is, our right standing before God? Well, for our purposes, the most important session of the Council was Session 6. They issued their canons and decrees on 13 January 1547. In Canon 4, Rome declared, If anyone says that man's free will moved and excited by God, by assenting to God who is moving and calling, in no way cooperates toward disposing and preparing himself for obtaining the grace of justification, that it cannot refuse its consent, that if it would, that it is something inanimate, that it does nothing whatever and is merely passive, let him be anathema, that is, let him be eternally condemned. In number 17, it says, if anyone says that the grace of justification is only attained to by those who are predestined unto life, which of course had been the doctrine of Thomas Aquinas, but it goes on to say, all others who are called are called indeed, and mark that, that's a subtle little indicator that they had actually paid close attention to what Luther and the others had said about what we call the free offer of the gospel. And so they note that there. We get it, they're saying, that you believe in the free offer. But they go on to say, but receive not grace as being in the divine power predestined unto evil, let him be anathema. And there, Rome effectively condemns not only Thomas Aquinas, who was the theologian of the Counter-Reformation, so that's odd, but she also condemned a whole host of Neo-Augustinian theologians in the 15th century, in the 9th century, and arguably Augustine himself, and of course, all of the Protestant reformers. In canons 10, 11, and 24, Rome went on to repudiate the Reformation root and branch. It says, if anyone says that men are just, that is righteous, without the justice or the righteousness of Christ, whereby he merited for us to be justified, or that it is by justice itself that they are formally just, let him be eternally condemned. 
Rome assumes that the ground on which we stand before God is our own intrinsic righteousness. And when she says that Christ merited for us to be justified, when she condemns that, she is condemning virtually a quotation of the Protestant theologians and the Protestant confessions. She goes on, If anyone says that men are justified either by the sole imputation of the righteousness of Christ or by the sole remission of sins to the exclusion of the grace and love which is poured forth in their hearts by the Holy Spirit and is inherent in them, or even that the grace whereby we are justified is only the favor of God, let him be eternally condemned. Again, you really couldn't get a clearer total repudiation of the Reformation because she very accurately summarizes what it was the Protestant Reformers were saying, what the churches were saying, what we were condemned confessing what we understand the Word of God to say, and she was saying, this view is eternally condemned. She goes on to say, if anyone says that the righteousness received is not preserved and also increased before God through good works, but that the said good works are merely fruits and signs of justification obtained— And again, there you see, that's a very good summary of what the Protestants were saying. If anyone says that our good works are not a cause of the increase of our righteousness, let him be eternally condemned. So it's very, very clear if we just read the documents themselves, we can see that Rome understood exactly what the Protestants were saying, and she rejected it. And she continues to reject it if we look at her actual official authoritative documents like the Catechism of the Catholic Church and other documents that have equal authority. She rejected explicitly the Protestant doctrine of justification by or through faith alone. She says, if anyone says that by faith alone the impious is justified in such a way as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to the obtaining of the grace of justification— and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will, let him be anathema. If anyone says, Rome confesses, that justifying faith is nothing else but confidence in the divine mercy which remits sins for Christ's sake, or that this confidence is that whereby we are justified, let him be anathema. Well, Rome is rejecting there Article 4 of the Augsburg Confession, and she might just as well have, if it were possible, in front of her the Heidelberg Catechism or the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Well, of course, those documents didn't exist yet, but she is repudiating the doctrine those documents confessed. And again, Rome says, if anyone says that the commandments of God are, even for one that is justified and constituted in grace, impossible to keep, let him be anathema. So, these are all very clear evidences that Rome understood what the Protestants were saying. In fact, I've often said, and I think it's true, if you want to know what the Protestants were saying about Scripture— about justification, one could read the canons and decrees of the Council of Trent and understand very clearly what the Protestants were saying. And the same thing is true about the sacraments. For example, Rome says at Trent in 1562, if anyone says that these sacraments were instituted for the sake of nourishing faith alone, let him be anathema. If anyone says that these sacraments of the new law do not contain the grace they signify, or that they do not confer that grace on those who do not place an obstacle thereunto, 
as though they were merely outward signs of grace or justice received through faith, and certain marks of the Christian profession, whereby believers are distinguished from amongst men from unbelievers, let him be anathema. And again, that language that they're using is taken right out of the Protestant theologians and the Protestant confessions. Rome understood, for example, that the Protestants had universally rejected the doctrine of transubstantiation, the doctrine that when the priest consecrates the elements that they are transformed in their essence and no longer actually bread and wine, but now actually the body and blood of Christ, even though they look, smell, and taste like bread and wine. Further, the Protestants had rejected the doctrine that in the Mass— There is a Eucharistic sacrifice, that is, a memorial sacrifice whereby the wrath of God is said to be turned away. The technical word for that is propitiated. That was the doctrine of the Roman communion and had been since the 13th century, and the Protestants had all rejected it. Canon 3, in September of 1562, said, If anyone says that the sacrifice of the Mass is only a sacrifice of praise and of thanksgiving, or that it is a bare commemoration of the sacrifice consummated on the cross, but not a propitiatory sacrifice, or that it profits him only who receives, and that it ought not to be offered for the living and for the dead, for sins, pains, satisfactions, and other necessities, let him be eternally condemned." And again, there you have very clear evidence that Rome had read the Protestants, understood what they were saying, rejected them categorically, intelligently, and consciously. The Reformation stood fast against Trent all the way through the meeting of Trent. Some Lutheran theologians wrote a giant response to Trent, and John Calvin wrote an antidote to Trent, so they watched it very carefully, interacted with it while it was taking place, and they stood fast against it for the Scriptures as the sole ruling authority for the Christian faith and the Christian life in favor of salvation by God's free favor alone through faith alone. They stood against transubstantiation, against the memorial propitiatory sacrifice of Christ, but over time, several movements arose within Protestantism, even as Rome became increasingly sophisticated in her criticism of the Reformation. That would make it more difficult for the Protestants to hold on to their confession, and we'll look at some of those challenges next time. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.